Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Consulting. But you can take something, not change the objective thing at all, and by giving it a different context or a different frame, you can make it an entirely different thing in terms of the emotional effect and therefore the resulting behavior. Hello, Nudges. Welcome to episode 24 of Obehave with your host, I'm Mike Hughes and... Jordan Buck. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, mate. How are you? Very good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, so we are in Folkestone for our annual festival of behavioural science. How are you feeling, mate? Very good. Currently looking over the beautiful beaches of Folkestone from Leescliff Hall. Um, not quite as sunny today as it was yesterday, but still some lovely views. And very excited for all the speakers we've got lined up. It's a perfect day for behavioural science, I'd like say. Uh, who are you looking forward to speaking? Um, I mean, all of them, but one, one person in particular, Robert Frank. Um, mm, he just spoke on last a, night, yeah. yeah, spoke last night. Super interesting. I remember reading his book when I was sort of studying economics in school and got me into sort of behavioural economics. So yes. been a fan for, for a long time, so very excited for that. How about you? Um, I mean, I'm, I kind of, I'm just interested in how like, Spotify and Uber do it, I think. That's really interesting for me. Um, how do they use behavioural science? Where is behavioural science and technology is an interesting question. Yeah. Uh, for me. Rory was saying the next big changes in technology are going to come from kind of psychology. So mm. big tech companies like Spotify, like Uber, using psychology to make the next big advancements um, for their business. So, yeah. yeah, should be super interesting. Well, hopefully we'll find out. Um, right, anything else to say? No, should we go in and find some people and annoy them? I think think we should. Cool, stay tuned. So I am here with Milana and Will from Spotify who have just blown everyone's minds, I think, by the, the depth but also the insight and the user insight that they have just given us um, from Spotify. The thing that I picked up the most was, Will, your point where you said the tiny things matter. They do. They really do. I mean, I think what we've... As a, as a recurring theme of Nudge Talk this year, which, by the way, has been one of the most fantastic conferences I've ever attended, is just how complexity can kill intuition. Yeah. I really mean it. It's just how having all those data points there doesn't actually get you to where you want to get to. And the example I gave, I think, which really resonated with the audience, was if you're going to do an email-based experiment, and in our case, we were emailing to say to Milena, do you know you've only got two days left to get your Discover Weekly? We never thought about what email address we were sending it to. It could be a work address, it could be a Gmail address, or in my case, it's still a redundant Hotmail address that I used when I registered in 2009. So just to stop and check yourself and think, what what stones have I not turned over is so crucial as opposed to just basking in all this data that you have which thinks you're going to produce the right inference. So, yeah, that was a big one for me. And, Milana, when you were talking, you said the the thing that we found or, or was the light bulb moment about what wasn't working and then you started to see which was was it um it, there was a specific date and time which you thought was which became really effective yeah so exactly for daily mix specifically what we what we thought is the cover art you know wh- why aren't we playing around with the cover art how is that how is that visual cue really impacting the user behavior and that was the aha moment where we realized well we can experiment with that we can leverage behavioral science to basically provide a better user experience for users um, and, and 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 we did that and and 
turned out, well, behavioral science actually is having an effect on that music listening experience. Um, so scaling that is, 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 is an exciting thing. And I think data has been, we let's just test everything, let's just test everything. But it seems now you guys are coming from a behavioral insights position first, which gives you the basis for the testing, am I right? Yeah, I mean, oftentimes people just want to test absolutely everything. And the thing that really most excites them is to get a huge effect, right? And, and as Will pointed out, the details are also really important. So you really want to have a structured framework uh, from which you're, you're, you're running those experiments, designing them, uh, running them, uh, analyzing the results and also scaling them. Uh, so having some methodology around that is really key in having su- successful behavioral experiments just on the wealth of data that can pour into these experimentations and where it gets lost. I've got this trick that I do when you ask somebody who takes this unfortunate approach, in my opinion, mm. they give you a really long, elaborate answer. At the end, I just say, oh, sorry, can you just remind me what was the question? <laughs> and I've got a 100% track record in seeing that they've actually forgotten the question they were trying yes. to answer. Yeah. That was the point. And, you know, why is Discover Weekly so popular? Here's all these skips, saves, dwell time metrics. Who thought about the day of the week as a revelation there? None of us that's important and the power of asking a different question i suppose sometimes the thing towards the end of your talk the thing that really hit home to me was you guys are probably one of the first that have actually started to make sense of in the unlimited abundance world of digital but arguably with music as well you've now started to create curations and you're probably leading that when did that kind of become a bit of a shift for you guys I mean, curation's always been at the company, but now it's on a whole different level. And there's quite a few interesting studies about the sheer monetary impact of getting onto some of our playlists as well. It's almost a bit frightening in terms of, you know, the gatekeeper question which came at the end. But the key thing is, you know, I really do believe we're a gate opener. And again, you have to look for expect. You have to look for examples of success where you didn't intend it to happen. We have, we have a playlist called Peaceful Piano. Um, what does that tell us? It's a playlist with lots of peaceful <laughs> piano music. What it tells us is, I think there's like six, maybe seven million people now opting in to the Peaceful Piano playlist experience. So you could be a pianist who's used to playing intimate jazz bars and suddenly find yourself listening with an audience of six to seven million people on Peaceful Piano. Nobody intended that to happen. But then stepping back into your earlier question, the people listening to Peaceful Piano will be the same people listening to dance playlists at the weekend. Mm. Students studying to Peaceful Piano, partying to dance music. And that involves reading across the columns, not down them. That's a really important learning for us. And for us, for the Richard Taylor fans listening and in the audience, he was a bit of effect on you guys as well. Massively. Um, I was just honoured that you returned to my email and really, really grateful that we've had to, the chance to work with Milena, who's, you know, as you saw today, transformed some of the company's projects just as part of our student programme. I mean, I should stress that the team in Chicago, they get to work with all sorts of different companies and with no disrespect, working on setting the price of water in Chicago might not be as fascinating as developing solutions for Daily Mix and Spotify. But um, yeah, it's very, very important that we have people like that who can sort of fight back against the econometricians. Let's just remember that up until 1967, Economist was owned by logical thinkers, not by mathematicians. That's where it went wrong for me. And I think people like Richard Taylor are helping wheel it back onto the right path. Do you think it's, and this might be one for you, Melania, do you think it's the, because in technology we can test quick, that means that it doesn't have to go high up the command chain to, here's a really counterintuitive thing we want to test, can we test it? Oh, okay, well, we'll have to build it, everyone will have to sign it off. 
Do you think there's something in that that we can test quicker with technology? Absolutely. And I think that this hugely depends on the company culture, right? If you have a culture of quick experimentation where you don't have to go up the chain of command to get approvals, budgets, resources, and all of that, then I think that really pushes your company at the edge of innovation. And that's where you want to be. You want to be constantly experimenting. You want to iterate on your products. You want to listen to your users and apply behavioral science to figure out what is the next frontier and how can we get there quickly I think the, the, the probably just the final thing that interests me the most was when you said that you got things wrong sometimes we make these models which can be rational but also we do it on behavior and we get behavior wrong all the time how much is what we get wrong just as useful as what we get right I think if I can just give you an example going back to discover weekly one of the core parts of our presentation um, our curators may look at skip ratios and say that's a negative signal. Okay, so Milena skipped 28 of the 30 songs I put together for Discover Weekly this week. That's a really, really bad experience. I need to correct things. But what if, what if those 30 songs I put together for Milena were all songs that she knows and loves? My algorithm has worked wonders. There's 40 million songs, and I've plucked 30 from thin air and given her the songs. But the playlist was called Discover Weekly. She knows, she loves those songs, but she doesn't need to discover them, hence she skips them. I'm doing just great, but I've inferred that I'm doing just wrong. Mm. And that's a really interesting way of thinking through, yes, to have all these rich signals um, is wonderful, but you have to step back and remember, Melena entered Discover Weekly on a Monday morning to discover new music, not the songs that she already loved, and the skip facility was her saying, great job, keep it going, but I know 28 of these, I'm just going to discover the final two. That's amazing. Test counterintuitive things, test, of, test often. Thank you so much for your time and your talk. It was amazing. Thank, Thank you, Ogilvy. Thank you. Okay, so I'm in the bowels of Lee uh, with Robert Frank, who's literally just got off stage. Uh, so thank you very much for sparing sort of 10 minutes to speak to us for the podcast. My pleasure, Jordan. And from a personal level, I have to say, uh, I found it absolutely fascinating. And your book, uh, The Economic Naturalist, was one that I read, I think, sort of 10 years ago. Yes, and really, it's about that old. It's, no, actually, it's a dozen years old now. Yeah, and, and really, that was the book that got me into the behavioral side of economics. So yes. certainly, personally, I, I owe you a great thank you. Well, um, you're very welcome. <laughs> uh, your talk today was the, the mother of all cognitive illusions. Yes, that's um, the Are you able to talk to kind of what that, what that means and the social aspect of that in a sentence or two for those who aren't here today? Yeah, the, the problem that we face is that there are uh, many important public investments we need to make, probably the most critical ones, have to do with uh, research and development of technologies to deal with the climate crisis. Uh, those investments will be very expensive. Uh, we'll need tax revenue to pay for them. The only source, the only potential source of that tax revenue is people who are prosperous. Uh, poor people cannot contribute more in taxes to help pay for those investments. And so uh, there's enormous resistance from prosperous people to paying higher taxes, and the resistance stems from the fact that, number one, they feel that they've earned the money that, that came their way in the marketplace, they're entitled to keep it, but more than that, they, fe they fear that if their taxes went up, they'd be less able to buy what they want. That seems like a totally natural thing to believe. Uh, when you have less money, of course, you can buy less of what you want. But for prosperous people, that belief is completely false. And it's false for a simple uh, but understandable 
reason, and if we could dispel that false belief, it would be much, much easier to fund the public investments that have been short-changed so much in the, in, the, in the recent decades. So here's the, the mother of all cognitive illusions. If you're wealthy and you think about the effect of higher taxes, you're not worried that you'll be kept from buying things that you might reasonably be said to need. Of course, you have everything you need. Uh, the government wouldn't dare tax you so much that you couldn't afford necessities. What you're worried about is not being able to continue to afford the special extras that you want. And I think what people don't take into account is that the special extras that they want are things that are in generally in short supply. Special by its nature is a relative concept. It's things that stand out relative to other things. So. Uh, a penthouse apartment with a sweeping view of the city might be an example. Uh, if you think back to the, the last time your taxes went up as a cognitive strategy for figuring out what the effect of higher taxes would be, you come up short because you can't remember times in the past when your taxes did go up, since over time, for the last decades, taxes on the top earners have been going down, not up. So your plan B, cognitively, you know that if your taxes go up, you'll have less money. And so you try to think back to times when you had less money. And you can think of examples like that. You, you had a bad business year. Uh, you got divorced. You lost a lawsuit. You had a health crisis, maybe a home fire. All those, those times uh, are episodes where you had less money. And in each of those times, it was harder for you to buy what you want. But what's different about those episodes from the episode in which your taxes go up is that when you have a home fire, your income goes down, the incomes of other people like you stay the same as before. When people's taxes go up, your income goes down, but so do the other people like you experience income declines in the same mag magnitude. And to get the special things, like the apartment with the sweeping view, what you have to do is outbid other people like you who also want it. And if your taxes go up and their taxes go up, your relative bidding power is completely unaffected by that. Mm -hmm. And so the special extras that you want are available to you in exactly the same amounts as before. So your opposition to being taxed is founded basically on a, a very deep cognitive illusion. So interesting. And the social aspect, I suppose, that we don't necessarily realize is actually everything. It's just our relative wealth, our relative standing that is really what we care about. We don't necessarily see that reality. You, you can be in very different circumstances, but if your position in the local environment is similar to what it is here, you're, you're likely to feel about as satisfied with your conditions. I, I, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in rural Nepal long ago. I lived in a two-room house that had no running water, no electricity. Uh, in, in that context, it was a totally delightful house. I was happy to have guests over. No, nobody uh, thought ill of me for living in that house. Uh, if I lived in that house in the upstate New York town where I live, uh, I would be ashamed to have people over. It, that Living in that house would be a signal that I had completely made a hash of my life. Uh, my kids wouldn't want their friends to know where we live. It's all about context. Mm. And so I think, uh, you know, most people, if they read that in, in an essay, yeah, that seems right. But I think unless you experience that personally over a span of a few years, uh, 
which, which I had the good fortune to do, I think that insight has really informed much of my think, thinking in the decades since I've been back from it. Because you mentioned uh, last night, so you were speaking at the night before Nashtok, uh, which is brilliant, um, and you were mentioning the, the sort of related concept whereby um, if you take housing, for example, the price and the size of an average house goes up and up and up over time, not because you're necessarily happier than people were 50 years ago, but just because everyone is trying to be slightly better or keeping up with their peers. And that's the um, runaway effect that that has on our society. Yes, I, I call that the expenditure cascades process. And, and it's very simple. You know, the income gains of the last four decades have gone almost exclusively to people at the top of the income ladder. They behave normally. They do what people normally do when they get more money. They build bigger. They buy better. Uh, there's nothing morally defective about that impulse. It's what everybody does. Poor people do that. Middle-income people do it too. When they build bigger, the people in the middle don't get angry when they see pictures. They like the pictures. They, they, they think, oh, I'll be rich someday. Let's see what the mansions will look like. But then there are people who travel in the same circles as the people at the top. Uh, they go to events at the homes that are now bigger uh, of their friends at the top. And that shifts the frame of reference that governs what they feel is appropriate for them to invest in a house. They spend more, and then there's a group below them, uh, and there's overla overlap there too. Uh, they spend more, and it cascades all the way down. And the dilemma for the, the family in the middle is that the, the, the median house now costs more than 50% more than it used to, even though that family doesn't have more income in real terms than it used to. And if you don't buy what others are buying in your yeah, slice of yeah, the income yeah. distribution, it's your kids that go to the crummy schools. Mm -hmm. So that's the dilemma. Now, one, one other thing you talked about that I thought was fascinating was the idea of social contagion. Um, for those that weren't lucky enough to be there last night, are you able to give a, a definition of kind of what that means and why that's important? Uh, we, we're, the, the psychologists have a saying, it's the situation, not the person. Uh, if you want to explain what somebody does, look to the situational factors that surrounded the decision rather than traits of character or personality. Uh, those matter too, of course, but, but they matter much less than the situational factors. And uh, the situational factors that matter the most are what people like us are doing. So if people like us are behaving in a certain way, uh, with, without any conscious awareness, we feel uncomfortable if we are not behaving in, in a roughly similar way. And so uh, that, that's often a bad thing. Uh, we're induced to do things that it would be better if no one did them. Uh, but it, it can also be a good thing. If we can get people to adopt better practices, then there can be contagion there too. Behavioral contagion can give you much, much more leverage for the kind of policies that you, you would like to adopt to solve specific problems. So, for example, a carbon tax might induce people to put a solar panel on the roof. Uh, that, that's a direct effect. But what we know is that the people who install solar panels are much more likely to be located contiguous to a house that also has them, already has them. So one person taking action spurs people around that person to take action too, and then it radiates outwards. So I think the, the policy remedies that we have for the problems that we face are way more powerful than we realize because... Typically, we focus only on the direct effect of the policy, not on those indirect feedback effects. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to let you go. I know people are milling around in the break. 
Uh, so I won't hold you for any longer. But Robert, thank you so much, and thank you for a really interesting Nudge Talk and night before Nudge Talk Talk. Good to talk with you, Jordan. So it's now the first break. Uh, people are mingling around, so we're going to go and catch uh, some audience members and see what they've thought of the day so far. Great, you just introduce your name um, and whether you've been to Nudge Talk before. So I'm Katie Irving, and this is my third time at Nudge Talk. Marie, who's next to me, introduced me to it. Oh, excellent. Yeah, so I think this might be my fourth or fifth. I can't remember, but yeah. I love coming every year. Amazing. And what, what is so special about Nudge Talk that keeps you coming back? It's oh. a great ideas fest. Um, you know, lots of stimulus to take away and think about. I think, for me, that's the main selling point, actually. And for me, it's, well, it's the, the amazing speakers. I mean, Rory Sutherland is just unparalleled, but it's just every year the quality of the speakers is exceptional, and the mix of topics is so truly multidisciplinary here. I love the mix, and it's all about, yeah, the stuff that we try and think about and bring to our businesses, so it's... Areas that I've never even thought about, and actually when you hear it, it's like, oh, that's so relevant to what I do. Yeah. Totally, yeah. Excellent. Well, enjoy the rest of the day. Yeah. And then there's the candy stall. Just oh, there's candy. <laughs> That's the main thing. That's the main thing. Lovely to meet you both. Amazing. So I'm here with Matt, who's literally just come off stage. Um, I was trying to follow your talk, but I was just getting very distracted with Facebook and Instagram on my phone, so sorry I didn't catch much of it. Um, now, you were, of course, talking about uh, how addictive smartphones can be um, and the, the potential uh, solutions to that. Um, so perhaps a, a nice introduction is to say that you're CEO of a company called Hold. Um, are you able to give listeners who aren't here today just an overview of what Hold is and what you're trying to do? So Hold is uh, basically an app that gives you incentives to not use your phone. So the time of your phone equals points, and those points you exchange for uh, free coffee or a discount from Just Eat, or you can win the travel around the world. So about changing your behavior by using the same mechanics as maybe social media and games use to make sure it's fun to put down your phone. Amazing. And why is that so important today? You, you mentioned a stat uh, on stage which I thought was pretty staggering, the number of times people check their phones each day. Yeah, so apparently you touch like the next generation touch your phone 5,000 times a, times a day. Is and that true? That's insane. That's so high. So, and if you think about it, the num- so every time you pick up your phone, it takes you 20 minutes to get back in focus again. Mm-hmm. And so that people like will never have this really deep focus mode. Uh, so that's what we felt when we were students trying to curb our phone addiction and get good grades. And that really worked to have these small prices to actually change our behavior. Brilliant. Um, and one, one kind of graph you showed that I thought was, was really interesting was um, the levels of loneliness that people have felt over time. Um, and there were two kind of interesting spikes in that. Are you able to talk through that for the podcast listeners? Yeah, so um, up until 2007, we saw that people actually felt better about themselves, less left out, less by themselves. Uh, but suddenly something happened. There was the real, kind of the, the time when iPhone came. Uh, and suddenly you have all the information in the world was in the palm of your hand. And instead of maybe calling people um, um, calling people asking if you want to gonna do something, you were rather checking Facebook or Instagram, etc. if they were doing something fun and asking why I'm not invited. So that's why we see on the graph that you have now nearly 40% are feeling left out or lonely. So it's a huge change from uh, down to 
13% in 2007. And when the iPhone comes out, you see a, a spike in it? That's the spike, yeah, mm. when they launched it. Wow, wow. Um, and just thinking about the, the future, I suppose, how do you see, do you see the future as being bright and optimistic or, or a bleak reality where everyone's glued to, glued to technology all the time? No, I definitely see that we are going in the right direction. You have Apple and Google both launched their screen time um, products will be able to at least tell people how much time you spend on your phone. So that's a step in the right direction. Uh, but again, it will always make you feel bad because you get that report after you spend time on your phone. So I think that we still need tools in order to change behavior and make sure that we get the best out of the phone. Because again, the phone has so many opportunities to make sure to make your life easier. But it's not uh, right now. We don't use it that well, and we waste a lot of time on yeah. different stuff. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. It's like the the power of, isn't it? The power of like the best computer in the world in <laughs> 1960 in your pocket, yeah. and all I'm doing is scrolling through pictures on Instagram. Yeah, Bit of a waste. And, and that's the thing. Like, does that provide you some? Uh, does you only consume things, right? You don't kind of produce and create something and just make you feel worse yes like because think about it if why you post pictures on Instagram because you feel you look better because you put on a filter and you only uh, like post the nice pictures so you kind of build up a wall and a kind of a picture you paint a picture of yourself of a better person mm. so you always have to try to be that person that you pretend to be on Instagram and that's kind of really harming and dangerous effects which we see in the increase in suicide rate, uh, depression rate that's gone up by 60% I think in the last five years. So it's uh, quite shocking how we see that. But we haven't seen the studies yet providing real case what has changed. And that's the thing about the connection maybe to smoking that the government needed the like really hands-on to ban it. Yeah, That's to ban it, it because the, you saw studies in the 20s, 30s, 40s, but it was first in the 60s that they actually managed to do something. And that's the question. Will we, do we need to see the same kind of hands-on experiences before we be able to actually turn that around? Or can we use behavioral science and our understanding yeah. of human psychology in order to have those changes rather than relying on regulation? Mm. Yeah, super interesting. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Excellent. Well, people are mingling. Um, I'll let you get back to the day okay. and I'll put my smartphone away for the rest of the day. <laughs> thank you so much. Put it on hold. <laughs> Cheers. Okay, thank you. Okay, so now I have just caught Dr. Stephanie Johnson as she's just left the stage and she's just blown our minds by the power of unconscious bias. Well, thank you. I'm so, I'm so happy I blew your mind. <laughs> um, the bit that I think where this is most powerful, which you touched on, is in recruitment. And the graphs that you showed us where we've just started to see the power of unconscious bias. So that's actually on selection. That ah, is, right, okay. if you used um, blind selection where you've removed yes, 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 yes. the names uh, from someone's CV, then you're a lot more likely mm. to hire a woman or person of color or just someone who's different, right? It could be, um, as Rory mentioned, mentioned, someone who's a lot older that may have ne never made it um, into your candidate pool. Uh, or maybe someone, you know, a huge bias we have, and it's probably true in the UK as well, is uh, bias for school. Did you go to Oxford or Cambridge, yes, 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 yes. London School of Economics, yes. or some school you've never heard of, right? Yeah. And when you take that all off the resume, you're hiring truly the best person for the job, the best, the person with the best qualifications or experience or whatever that 
you're looking for, rather than things like education that are so heavily influenced by status, like um, your socioeconomic status. Do you think the f- or one of the steps in helping us overcome our biases is just the fact that we realize we have them? Yeah. So, I mean, that's why the A and the ABCs of breaking biases admit it. Because, I, you know, at the end of the day, we all want to believe we're good people. That's like one of our driving human motivations as people who live in a society. We want to feel we're good, right? We're on the right side of the aisle. We're like um, good human beings. And so I think when you think of someone who's racist or sexist, you think that's not the person you want to be. And so we so strongly push against that that we won't admit that we have biases. And if you won't admit that you have a bias or that there could be bias in your company, how are you ever going to fix it? Yes. And so it's first with the first step is just, of course, we have biases and we can do better. And, and do you think... Um, using kind of blind TVs is just we just need these tools more and more to help us overcome our biases. Definitely. Um, there's other ideas around blocking it, but things like dashboards that tell you how many, say, if in hiring, um, women or people of color, LGBTQ individuals you've actually hired, because people will vastly overestimate the diversity of their hires or promotions. You know, I, th- yes. I remember I just promoted Jenny last week. Like this, yes, there's one woman on my uh, senior leadership team. It feels like a lot, but when you can see how many applied and how many actually got the job, then those things start to click, right? It's putting data behind it. And how do you think that's fitting in with a lot of companies now saying, okay, we've got targets to match. How do you think that, what is the effect that's going to have? I think the targets will help because it has you have something you're working toward, a norm that you're trying to reach. Um, I think the data show, there's a meta-analysis, which is a study of all studies ever done on diversity, and targets was actually the most effective diversity employment practice, setting targets and goals. Um, I think people push against it a lot because it feels like a quota. You're not going to hire the best person for the job. You're going to try to just meet your numbers. And I would counter that with saying, we're not hiring the best person for the job now. Anyway. Yeah. If we're letting yeah. our unconscious biases mm. affect our decisions and we're not basing it on performance, mm. we're already making poor decisions. So, yeah. in fact, you could make, you would probably be making better decisions if you blinded it yes. and set goals. You would just know maybe your problem is in recruitment. People don't, maybe women and people of color don't want to work for your organization because you haven't put the message out there that you're friendly and inclusive because i think it's interesting because sometimes when i think companies do it badly is when they don't use the tools but they just create the targets or a quotas which is an awful word anyway because i think well how must those people who join the organization feel when they get there right yeah and there's good data to show that people always believe that when you have women and minorities in your company, they were there for affirmative action anyway. Yes. So it doesn't matter yeah. if you had t- quotas or oh, not. People guess, always yeah. think that. And women, at least one study showed, women tend to believe it too unless the company has firmly said we do not utilize any type of affirmative action. Mm. Women and people of color always fear that they're there because of wow. their status. Yeah. So I guess I would say people are going to be afraid of that anyway. People are going to think that anyway. I guess that's one of the strengths um, of blinding. But, I mean, I, I have to say, so if you hired me because I'm a woman, 
think about how many companies didn't hire me because I'm a woman. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. so, you know, maybe it all balances out. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I think you touched on that with Rory, that it does balance out. And the thing I once, we, I think we use this sometimes. Have you seen the, is it the violin study where um, okay, people, do you want to tell us about that? Because you'll tell that much <laughs> better than me, but it is the most fascinating study on kind of blind testing, I think. Yeah, that was from the National Symphony Orchestra in the United States. And they had, you know, 5% women in the National Symphony. And so in the 1970s, they implemented blind selection, where they basically put a curtain down on the stage so that uh, the people making decisions couldn't see the violinist or whatever um, instrument. And they even made women take off their shoes so they wouldn't hear the whatever clacky sound women make when they're walking across the stage. And then now it's 30% women in the National Symphony. And at least, you know, a large portion of that variance has been shown to be because specifically of the blinding wow i mean i think that's just the power of giving us tools so we overcome our biases which i think is amazing thank you so much for your time dr stephanie johnson where can we find out more about your work and what you do oh yeah um you can visit the university of colorado boulders webpage or um, look for me on linkedin stephanie johnson or at boulder stephanie on twitter Cool. Thank you so much. I think it's about to be lunch, so I'll let you go and grab some. Thanks so much. Thank you. Okay, so we've just broken for lunch. We've got the ukulele band playing in the background. I'm going to chat to a few people from the crowd and see what they've made of the day so far. So, first, if you just sort of say who you are, your name, and, and why Nudgestock, really? Uh, well, I'm Rebecca Chig. I'm from Acting Communication. We're a learning and comms agency based in Cambridge. Uh, we came last year, so it was brilliant really enjoyed the kind of uh, eclectic mix of speakers um, so much food for thought on so many topics um, just really like provocative thinking generally Rory Sutherland's fantastic and the range of speakers are great um, for us I suppose I mean we work with a huge amount of clients different industries um, and we're, we're, we're looking for innovative solutions really and I suppose for us it's about what we do we're trying to make things matter to people so we work in the learning world. So, you know, if you think of, um, you know, the care sector, where there's obviously big challenges in the sector, lots of very difficult to retain and recruit people. So we're trying to engage um, and, and kind of encourage people to do the right thing. But uh, it's very hard to do that through through uh, digital learning sometimes. So we're looking for ways to, to kind of really get to understand people um, and try and get people to do the right thing in a highly regulated environment without you know just telling them to do it this way yeah so it's just looking for look for inspiration it's really great to meet people from different industries um yeah just kind of have a think about what we do and how we do it and trying to encourage our clients to be our clients sorry to be a bit braver and and not reliant on you know all the data that is is in everyone's world actually what what matters to people and how can we leverage what really matters to humans and build connections and at the same time try and improve the world for um, the people who are in it really lovely because yeah we, we really hope nudge stock to be a eclectic mix of different kind of um, thought starters I suppose so yes. we're looking at different disciplines that we can hopefully then apply to our own sort of businesses to, yeah. to help and to change people's behaviours um, is that something that kind of comes across in the, the oh, range of speakers? Yeah totally um, I mean I think that's the thing with the, you know that eclectic mix it's we all go to 
our own industry conferences, but you you tend to hear the same thinking uh, from different people. Um, so coming somewhere like Nudgestock, where you've got people from so many different disciplines, but all focused on people, all focused on human and, 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 and connection and meaning, um, I think it's really helpful. It takes you out of your industry and takes you back to, I don't know, just enjoying um, that that mixture and that, that focus on human behaviour. It's, it's, yeah, it's good fun. Thank you so much, and enjoy this talk by uh, Uber, who are on next. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, I am stood here with Trisha Rang, who I think might hold a record at Nunchstock for having the most people taking pictures of her slides. Stop it. <laughs> so, I... It was it the slides of my corn? <laughs> It was as people come for the corn, stay for the big data. Um, so I think the most interesting thing I found about your talk was the next step from big data to thick data. Right. So thick data is the most direct, unmediated form of getting data from humans and society overall, using all of your senses to capture their stories and emotions. And I think the interesting thing that I took from it is when you showed us the triumph. What was the tripartite. Thank you. Um, where you said it's a it triangle, was triangle, essentially. <laughs> triangle. Order for triangle. We can just say triangle. <laughs> triangle for listeners at home. Um, where it was was it creativity? So there's a creative and brand on one side, and yes. then there's your ad tech, you know, martech, performance yeah. marketing, analytics, whatever you want to call them. That's mm. on the other corner of the triangle. But the whole, the bottom of the triangle, it's an inverted triangle. Mm. The point, the top point, is at the bottom, and it rests on consumer insights. And when I say consumer insights, it's a catch-all word for people who go and understand human behavior. So it would include behavioral economists, but that's only one very small slice mm. because you also need the ethnographers, the anthropologists, sociologists, the psychologists, people who understand systems. You know, anthropology isn't enough because usually anthropologists understand communities and people. Um, you also need sociologists who understand systems theory and understanding how institutions work. So it's not just about watching what people say and watching what people do, but it's also making sense of how the entire system and where the world is going. Because the last 20, 30 years, we've had the what. What are people doing? What are people clicking on? Are we now moving to the what and the why? Whoa, yes. The answer is yes. You set it up very well. <laughs> we do need to know the why because the what, you know, you can find out what people are doing, but I'm always telling people just knowing what people are doing doesn't mean you understand who the people are. You know, everyone's like, well, we know what, how many people are listening and what time they get up to listen to our music or, you know, how many times they're buying something. I'm like, but why? If you want to ask why, you inevitably have to go beyond the database or your first party data or third party. You have to actually talk to people or observe or go outside of your building mm. and find out what the hell is going on. And you touched upon it, I think, towards the end when you were talking to Rory and you said you've seen some instances where big data goes wrong in a huge way. Yeah, I've been in so many companies where they put unbelievable blind faith in their analytics or big data processes. And this is a bias that I call the quantification bias, mm. where you value the measurable over the immeasurable. And when I was at Nokia, That'll I be a table in next year's nudge stock. What? That'll be a new table yeah, I in hope next so. year's so. Bless. Please make yes. quantification a bias <laughs> that table. That would make me so happy. <laughs> and then I want to sit at that table. Um, <laughs> 
But yeah, like, and Nokia, they, they did, you know, there's countless companies, but I first saw it when, I mean, actually, I first saw it when I was at NASA, you know, I, one of my first jobs was working as a filmmaker for NASA, wow. and my boss, Sally Ride, always would talk to me about uh, the Challenger space crash and the space shuttle crash of 1986, and that actually came down to one of the origins of the people who, the Cassandra of it was this engineer who was like, look, I think this is, there's going to be a catastrophic crash because I know these wow. things aren't, this, this thing that's supposed to seal is not going to seal, and therefore it's the whole thing is going to blow up. And the, when I went through all the paperwork and what I found out was that actually he was he said this. Everyone knew that he said this a year before the crash, but people were like, give me a quantitative model. Prove it. And he's like, I'm the freaking scientist. Of course I know this, but I you're telling me to give you a model for unknown conditions. And, and you're like, he's like, people were like, but tell me at what second it's going to crash. He's like, who gives a fuck what second, you know? <laughs> he's like, it's going to crash. You really need a fucking graph to, yes. tell, you yes. know, to tell you guys when your whole entire fucking mm. crew is going to die. And so, Which might be an analogy, so it's interrupt for companies like Nokia. Yeah. So, and then I saw that at Nokia, like, and I was like, oh my god. Of course, this is not about going into. It's not as you know big of deals going to the moon, but it was the same thing. It was about this company who had such blind faith in their models and have been around for so long that they just really did not think that their quantitative models and their business analysts who told them that people would continue buying feature phones, that these people who were poor would ever change their behavior. So it was also their own wow. mental model, not only mm. their business model, but I would argue it was Nokia's own mental model of what they assumed people who were poor or low income would do. Because the iPhone had just come out, but people thought the iPhone was only for people who really had money, who could afford it, and people of privilege. And so Nokia, which is really sad because Nokia is the one who made the mobile revolution accessible mm. and equal, you know, because mm. anyone could buy a phone. They, their own actual, their own way of seeing the world and their own success blocked them from their next level of success. Because they just never thought low-income people would want to invest over half their annual income into saving up for a smartphone. It's interesting that their metric became size almost. Smaller, everyone wants smaller, everyone wants smaller. You almost create your own rabbit holes that you go down. Yeah, yes. I think the, the one last thing that I just want to touch on is how do we all get to thick data then? Do, as behavioral scientists, have to get better at data? Do data-driven people have to get better at human understanding? Yeah, so one thing that we teach at our company, Set and Compass, is we teach baseline data, data literacy. And what we mean by this is we're saying, there's now that data is everywhere in the company, and it's not just owned by like the CTO or the technology, you know, the data, the data analyst or data scientist. Data is everywhere, and data is going to be increasingly made available to everyone, qualitative mm -hmm. and quantitative. That means that we all have to learn how to communicate with data and with a baseline literacy. So it means we're Regardless of your expertise, of your T, right, of your deep T, you have to have some kind of broad knowledge. It doesn't have to be deep of understanding ethnography and data science. You know, you have to understand the range of, of you know, which includes behavioral sciences. But everyone has to understand a little bit of everything enough to know the value of it, of when to put the right kind of teams together. And then you, of course, can own your own T and have deep expertise. But we think that baseline data literacy is needed for everyone. And we also think that means everyone needs to be able to be comfortable looking at numbers and charts, but also everyone, and also that includes, you know, looking at algorithms and looking at formulas and variables, just looking at them, not constructing 
instructing them. But also it means everyone needs to be comfortable getting out of the building and just going and observing and talking to people. And so it even means like data scientists, yes, they need to get out of the building and go talk to people. And I've, and in our workshops and labs, we have freed data scientists from their desk. And they get actually so excited when they go talk to people. And it actually improves the queries they run. And they will now vouch for and swear by saying, I need to get out of the building. And ethnographers feel very empowered when they finally can look at an algorithm and say, you know what, that variable does not comport mm. with human behavior, so I want, how do we mathematically scale what I believe, what, I, what we're seeing in the human model, how do we get that and build that out into a data model? Mm. They don't have to have the answer, but they have to be aware and literate enough to know when to ask that question, which I think is one of the most single most important questions that, you know, we have that taped to our wall, which is how do we mathematically scale human insight, human models wow. into a data model, you know, and that has, that kind of questioning needs to happen amongst everyone. Because if your data model is not built on a human model of how mm. humans actually interact, yeah. your data model is fucking useless. It's just a model <laughs> and it's not as, you want to close that gap. Of course, everything's a model, but you want to close the gap between your data model and the human model. Well, Tricia, you've You've got Yay, a thank you. <laughs> another Trisha fan. You've got a new com converter in me as well, and um, the campaign for getting thick data into the dictionary next year has just started. Um, and quantification bias. And quantification and bias. Tech ethnographer. <laughs> We're all tech ethnographers. Anyone can be one. Comes with their own vocabulary. Um, I think. Sam has just entered the stage again. So oh, we're going to go, where can we find out yes. more about you, your company? You can go to my website, trishawang.com, and my company is called Sudden Compass. It's all out there on the internet. Amazing. Thank you so much. So I'm here with Sir Paul Collier, who has just come off stage. Um, the final act of the day before the, the panel discussion. Uh, Sir Paul, it's an absolute honour to have you here at Nudgestock. So your, your talk was all about the future of capitalism. Um, and really, you're saying, in essence... Capitalism works, um, but not necessarily on autopilot. Um, are you able to talk to that, that kind of uh, quote in a bit more detail? Sure. So, uh, um, periodically, capitalism derails, and it's derailed big time now. Um, started in around 1980 with two new divergences. One is a, a divergence between the provinces and the metropolis. In Britain, it's London versus everywhere else. Um, that's been common around a lot of the, the rich countries of the world, um, but, uh, but it's gone on and on uncorrected for 40 years. It's reversed 200 years of coming together. And then the other rift is between the well-educated, good university education, mm. and the people less well-educated. And again, for 200 years until about 1980, that gap got narrower. In the last 40 years, it's got wider and wider. And these two things link together because if you're a well-educated provincial kid, as I was from Sheffield, you don't stay in Sheffield. You go to the metropolis, <laughs> right? Mike will love this, by the way, or other podcast host who's also from Sheffield and doesn't stop talking about it. He'll be absolute biggest fan. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the examples you gave of how we can successfully overcome some of these challenges was that of Edinburgh uh, in Scotland. Are you able to explain that example in a bit more detail? Sure. So, uh, ten years ago, they decided, let's bring a dynamic new sector to the city. They chose IT. Right? Pretty standard sort of idea. At the time, they only had two IT firms in the whole city. All four business, universities, 
finance, local government, all four work together to attract IT. They've now got 480 firms. It's the biggest cluster in the whole of Europe. Yeah. So we know how to do it. We just, we're just not doing it. Yeah. Yeah? That's dumb. Right? Um, and the other thing we've got to do is, okay, you can produce, that way you can produce good job opportunities, but then you've got to get young people equipped to do them. And so I, I think of it as you've got to turn a baby with a brain into a 24-year-old with a mind. Right? The brain is a physical endowment. The mind is a social construct. People are not born with a mind. Right? And you think of that passage from that baby to a 24-year-old, all the way along that line, we need families to hold the kids together. We need firms to be involved in vocational training so that people are equipped with skills that are needed in that city. Um, But we need to bring jobs to where people feel they belong and equip people in those cities to actually do those jobs. And one thing you were talking about within employment is that we see this um, perhaps a decline in trust. So trust in your employees um, and an over-monitoring of what they're doing, which might make economic sense sometimes but actually on a psychological level it's really harmful and therefore it doesn't make economic sense either Mm. right um so we've moved in the last 25 years we know because we've asked the same question in surveys for 25 years have you got enough autonomy in your job to be able to do it properly 25 years ago most people said yes now most people say no there's been a 40% drop in yes because we're all tied to chasing carrots with monitored performance and longer and longer contracts which say what we've got to do it doesn't work and you gave a really nice example of Finland's education system as an example of where they've understood this and really changed the whole structure to make it work that's right so Finland puts trust in teachers because they've got all the tacit knowledge of you know, here, little, little, little Fanny is, you know, she, she's, today it's not worth trying with her, but tomorrow, now's the chance to really get her excited about something. That's the tacit knowledge that is destroyed when you just say, oh, we monitor you by codified performance, you know. And, um, uh, and so Britain has stripped teachers of the power of discretion. We monitor teachers, we give them carrots, to, as long as they perform according to our prescribed behaviour and then we test children all the way along test, test, test the Finns do exactly the opposite trust the teacher right? let them decide what to do and trust the kids get them involved as well mm. so um, the only time the Finns test is at the very end of the education system so the PISA score and very embarrassingly they are way up at the top and where right down low bottom you know so so we know this stuff doesn't work uh, in my talk i gave the example in business of general motors versus uh, toyota um, general motors did the full monty of carrots tied to monitor performance and uh, zero trust um, and toyota did exactly the opposite trust uh, the the workforce um to spot faults and if they spot a fault they can stop the production line Uh, we know this intimately because over the period of about 50 years when Toyota competed with General Motors Toyota bankrupted literally it bankrupted General Motors by 2009 
General Motors went bust. Fifty years before, it had been the most profitable company on earth. And so it doesn't work, all mm. this um, monitoring carrots, distrust. Um, what works is building loyalty. People are naturally morally load-bearing. So are families, so are firms. We need to get back to it. Amazing. And one thought I had was, do you see in the Toyota example, for example, um, so in the Toyota instance, for example, um, the trust of employees is, is really high, that you, if you see a fault, you're just going to pr- pull it, and, you know, that's fine. has a big consequence on our, the amount of money we're earning each second. Um, would there be a negative consequence psychologically on the employees, do you think, that, oh, it might be a fault, but I'm not going to pull it in case it's a false alarm and I don't want to cause a big scene. Toyota explained this very carefully to employees, and they, they had this uh, catchphrase, faults are treasures. Because if you can spot a fault, we can produce a fault-free car. Mm. That's why Toyota became such a much better car than, than, than the General Motors cars. Um, if it, Toyota cooperated with General Motors throughout, and so at one stage they ended up producing the same car on the same conveyor belt wow. in America. The only difference was that every alternate car was branded General Motors and the other cars were no. branded Toyota. Wow. So they were dropping out the same conveyor belt, just identical cars with different badges. <laughs> and by then, people had learned Toyota doesn't mm. have faults. And so Toyota was selling for $3,000 more than the identical wow. GM-badged car. And that was the difference between good profit and going bust. Wow, that is so crazy. And in, in our team, we work a lot with um, factories in the US. So how can we improve um, employee safety? Um, so there's definitely learnings that we can take from this um, that you're saying. They, they're saying, well, the faults are the treasures. Like We can learn from yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and it's totally what we found. We found that actually... Um, by making people not scared of saying, oh, this isn't right, or not scared of saying, oh, I think there's something wrong here, but actually empowering them to do so through little psychological nudges um, is really, really effective, rather than these massive incentives that cost the company millions of pounds. And, of course, faults are treasures was a beautiful way of explaining it, right? That people understood, oh, if I can spot a fault, then I'm really doing something to be proud of. You know. um, final question. Um, do you think other um, areas can benefit from this increase in, in trust, I suppose? So um, do you think this, the same learning applies to families with their kids or to governments with their citizens or um, anything of course, else? Of course. There's been a collapse in trust in government, um, which is disastrous, right? Um, all governments need the trust of citizens. Otherwise, they can't get willing compliance. And so uh, all, all public policy depends on a big dose of willing compliance. Willing compliance depends upon, I trust the government. And at the moment, people don't. Same with families. We've had a massive decline in the trust in families. What is ridiculously called children's rights is nothing to do with the rights of children it's the rights of the state to remove children from their families Um, and so what's what's dressed up as children's rights is actually the destruction of family rights we're not trusting families we need to be strengthening families not destroying them in the poorer half of society 
family stability has really declined a lot uh, in the last 40 years, and it's a tragedy. Um, We know, for example, that a child growing up in an unstable single-parent family, um, by the age of nine, um, the telomeres that are the caps on their DNA in their cells, the telomeres have eroded by 40%. That's massive. It's irreversible damage. And it's uncom- you, you can't compensate it by money. If we double that family's income, the telomeres, the little caps on the DNA, would only be 5% longer. So um, family stability is a really good thing, um, and we need to get back to it. And we, need, we do that not by bullying families, but by helping them. So, Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I know we're sitting outside on the balcony with this lovely view of the English Channel, um, but I will let you get back inside. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. And incidentally, I never used that knighthood. (laughs) Thank you very much. Welcome to episode 24 of the Obehave podcast, live from Nudgedock 2019, with your host Dan Bennett and me, Mike Hughes, and today we have a very, very special guest, the Nudgedock 2019 audience! Now here at the Behavioural Science Practice, we know that by asking provocative questions we can get to new and provocative answers. So what could possibly go wrong by asking our five hundred well, is it 6,000 people here tonight? Um, <laughs> asking our 6,000 audience today to say provocative questions and ideas to see if we can tackle one of the biggest challenges of our time. And as you know, that uh, the one that we would most agree, I'm, I'm sure from this morning, is climate change. So throughout the day, we've been collecting in your provocative thoughts. Before we get going, we have our method, we have our challenge, so please put your hands together and keep it going for our big conversation panel of Rory Sutherland, Milena B, and author David Badanis. Okay, so we have 15 minutes. We have a lot of suggestions to get through, so I would suggest a quick-fire round, quick-fire conversation from the panel. We'll discuss the merits and some of the defects of some of the ideas that come out, and at the end, we will pick the idea that we believe is the most provocative and the, most, the, most, the question that gets us to the most interesting new space. Are we ready, panel? That sounds like a good yes. Yes. Um, so, Mike, you're in the audience now. Can we have hello, provocative I am question in. number hello, one? Hello, does this work? Is this on? Hello, 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 hello. Uh, so, I'm in the audience. I'm with the proles here, but I'm just going to walk through. So, hello. Uh, table number six. Paul, can you please read out your provocative thought for us, please? Okay, so we're, we're from Sheffield, and in the early kind of 1900s, height uh, of the Industrial Revolution there, there was a lot of people dying just from the poor air quality. And um, the thing with that is you could see it, you could literally see it, the smog in the air. The problem with CO2 is that you can't, so we want to colour the carbon. So how do we make the bad things, which are called climate change, more salient? I mean, one really interesting thing is, A, it's patently invisible. 
I'm not sure if there's a chemist here who can actually make it change colour, which would be interesting in itself. What's also interesting, I think, is that the metrics we use are completely mentally useless. Like tonnes of CO2. It's very weird to talk about weight of a gas, isn't it? I mean, it's not very kind of system one friendly. So if someone can think of... It, it makes a big difference, by the way, um, the metrics you use. Uh, we make a mistake, I think, in the Anglo-Saxon world in using miles per gallon rather than um, essentially gallons per 100 kilometres or litres per 100 kilometres because it totally misrepresents... From going from a 15 to a 12 mile per gallon car sounds relatively trivial, whereas actually in percentage terms, that's much more important than going from 40 to 50 miles per gallon. So it misrepresents things. If someone can come up with a really, really good measure, which isn't tons, essentially, which isn't even cubic meters, if someone can find a really, really clever measure of that, they've made huge progress just in that alone. That's, that's me. Yeah, I think I would like to add a little bit more to that. Um, the problem with climate change is that on the individual level, you don't know what these metrics mean. So one of the cool things is, well, how can we make that more digestible for that particular individual to understand, well, you know, how, how much you know, CO2 am I emitting? What's the impact on me? And make it salient that way. David. Uh, as somebody who believes, uh, um, I think I'm the last person left from the United States who believes that education can produce a, a greater uh, public uh, good, um, I think when people see some of the underlying, not so much the physics of how heat goes in and out of the atmosphere, but they don't know what carbon is. Imagine the earth is covered with forests, and the forests, as you know, suck up carbon dioxide from the air. The trees, the solid bulk of the trees, isn't made from the water in the ground or minerals in the soil, it's made from carbon in the air. So forests, fill, imagine the jungles of the Amazon and, and the, uh, in the Jurassic era, jungles spreading elsewhere and stuff. The trees soaked up an entire atmosphere of forest, and then those sunk down and later become coal. And then the next generation of trees su su uh, sucked up the entire atmosphere of Earth, the entire atmosphere of Earth, the carbon, and sunk down to make another tiny layer of coal. This went on for 85 million years. What we're doing is we're releasing, when we burn the carbon, when we burn uh, coal, we're releasing an entire atmosphere of Jurassic atmosphere into the Earth every few hours. So we could do the number of Jurassic atmospheres per month. And we could say, wow, we've gone down from 14 duplications of Jurassic Park this month to only 12 and a half next month. That's pretty good. That's fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. Brilliant, brilliant idea. Uh, Roman Mike, I can see you in the crowd. You're at another table. Yeah, so I am here. Uh, Steve Colgan said something um, about making everyone Hindu, but I don't know whether we can discuss that one now. Um, however, uh, virtual signaling, Cohen Smith, sorry, I can't get over to you, but virtual signaling, how do we increase giving badges? For people to choose uh, better things like slow, efficient shipping, that kind of thing. I know we've mentioned virtual signaling today. So how do you make, in other words, desirable behaviour more visible? Yeah, I mean, I suppose how do you give badges for good behaviour would be interesting. Uh, it's very interesting because it's something, again, that economics doesn't really understand. It doesn't really understand status or reputation, uh, just as it doesn't really understand I think, obligation. Um, it's a really interesting question. One interesting thing you could do as a framing would be you start off with a balance every year and you use it up. In Italy, you don't gain penalty points on your license, you lose points. 
And the evidence seems to be that it's more effective. You start off with 12, and if you're caught speeding, you're down to nine. So starting people off at a base point and making it publicly available according to your use would work both at an individual level but also at the level of collective um, guilt. I think there's a very important thing, about, by the way, about collective guilt and shame, which is if you've got a very, very good reason, okay, economics or law applies to everybody simultaneously um, uh, all at once. In many ways, if you, if you deploy what you might call shame and persuasion as distinct from law and economics, there's an advantage that nobody spots, which is, let's say you wanted people to put their dishwashers on at 12 o'clock at night rather than 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Okay? Now, that would make quite a big difference because the UK is kind of nuclear-powered at midnight, roughly. Not completely, but very largely. I've never seen any attempt to make that happen to make that change happen. What's also important about that is, if you encourage it, make it voluntary, people who have a good reason, someone whose washing machine is immediately above someone else's bedroom, can ignore it. People who find it easy can adopt it. And so there's something about nudge, the nudge approach and also the social shame and stigma approach, which I think we often miss about libertarian paternalism, which is you can be more ambitious with what you encourage, if people with a good reason not to participate are free not to do so and not economically punished for doing so. So actually using shame and reputation can be very potent. There's actually a really cool experiment uh, with, uh, with punch cards that you get when you go to your local coffee shop. And what, uh, what the researchers did is when they were giving out the, the coffee punch cards, they would give the punch card with already a punched hole. And so what that did is it signaled to the, to the coffee drinker that this is a great behavior, that they should be coming back more often. And so just by a simple punch of a card, um, that incentivized people to come back on a weekly basis way more frequently than they would otherwise do. So just by these basic you know, tiny cues to signal that, hey, this is a behavior that you should continue doing, um, they completely changed their, their, their business and, and, and grew their revenues. Um, and people kept coming back, which is the really cool thing. To make visible the progress you've Absolutely. already made. I, I pretty much defer to that. I would put that in the context of what our, our previous speaker said. When you're by yourself at any given moment, totally by yourself, you want to do nothing or have people do things for you. The moment you think about a group, think of medals given in the army, which we've had references to the wonderful events of 75 years ago. Um, if you're a part of a group, it, it, if it's not a, a malicious group, you have a purpose for doing this other thing, the camaraderie at a coffee shop, building up from these smaller groups. So I think if one uses those techniques but keeps in the back of mind who's watching this, right, then one has a chance. I think human beings, you know how you have recessive genes inside you and, and dominant genes. You might have recessives for red hair and you would, your children would only have it if your spouse also has the same recessive. Same thing with the benevolence or non-benevolence of human behavior. These techniques can bring it out, but to bring it out you need a goal, a purpose, and an aim. And the communities, of which we have many beautiful communities available for us, those can help pull it out. Very interesting. I know we have roaming mic in the balcony now. Uh, yeah, I'm in the posh seats up here, so um, can you tell me your name, please, sir? Hello, my name is Pete. And Pete, can you read out your counterintuitive thought, please? 
I absolutely can. Uh, it is to ditch degrees Celsius uh, and replace it with a new metric, so similar to the first point. Two psychological problems we see. First, with Celsius, there's positive associations. More Celsius sounds like something we want more of. There's almost no personal situation where you want uh, there to be fewer Celsius. And a de small denomination effect being the second one, uh, that these are tiny, tiny magnitudes relative to the amount that we talk about day to day. So um, half a degree here, three quarters of a degree there. So the proposition is to have uh, new degrees that we might call degrees CC or degrees climate change. Uh, that metric could be a little bit different. Uh, we see with earthquakes, they have the Richter scale, which is the actual impact of, uh, the, the power of an earthquake, but they also have the Macaulay scale, which is the amount of impact that the earthquake had. I would suggest that CCs could do a similar sort of job. Cool, you should work and behave in science. Well, I, I think we've solved this, because after Brexit, it'll be back to Fahrenheit anyway. Um, uh, but um, Britain is also a peculiar country, by the way, I will explain to any Americans here, where we typically use centigrade for low temperatures in the tabloid press, and Fahrenheit for high temperatures, because, ooh, it's over 90, sounds really exciting, whereas we can go, it's minus four. And because we don't actually have a very exciting climate, we've got to use the selection of different different measures to make our climate seem more exciting. The business of having very, very fine measures is great because, of course, the problem with the Richter scale is it's logarithmic. It's like decibels. So if actually you increase decibels by 10, it's 10 times louder. And the same is true, I think, of the Richter scale, if I'm right. And so creating something which was the opposite way around, where it actually amplified the element of, of temperature due to climate change, rather than minimised it, is again a real, that's, that's a really, really big idea. Smash him. <laughs> we, have an, uh, we have an anonymous submission here. So one of the boxes you could tick on your cards was that you didn't want to read it out. So this is from someone who's, who, um, who, who didn't want to read it out. The interesting one here was that we might have to actually get people to use more plastic straws. Because plastic straws could make you feel like you're doing your bit and give you a completion effect. So it might make you feel like you're doing enough. So actually by getting people to use more plastic straws, they might feel more guilty day to day and therefore enact even bigger changes in their lifestyle. Battle. I'm not sure how Californians would feel about that. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I'm trying to encourage the, different, the opposite behavior, right? I'm not sure that that would, uh, that would be a, a good thing uh, to give people uh, basically the incentive to, to do the exact opposite of what you would like them to do, specifically in that context. I mean, there is a really interesting point here, I think, which is, uh, I, someone told me that plastic straws, I'm not entirely sure how they get into the sea anyway, okay? But anyway, they, they account for something like 0.002% of the plastic in the sea, and something like 30% of it is fishing nets that are abandoned. And one of the things which I think the questioner is asking is, there's a huge danger in creating small, visible, virtuous acts which detract from far more important uh, behavior changes we could be making. It's rather like the fact that it's much more visible if you switch to a hybrid car than it is if you change your boiler. Even though, to be honest, changing your boiler, your central heating boiler, might be the best decision and the most important thing you can do. But as I said, unless you're the most boring man in the world, you can't really chat up girls by talking about your new boiler. Um, <laughs> And so there's very little signaling value to it, whereas there's very high signaling value to a campaign against plastic straws. And one of the other things I've often argued about is if you can get people to do good by stealth, 
Now that sounds a really weird thing because the environmental movement is committed to having people doing the right thing for the right reasons. Now I'd argue that if your behavior is good, your reasons don't really matter that much. And you might even argue that the fact that you're not knowingly doing something for a virtuous reason is good news because you don't then practice moral offsetting which is where the fact that you're very, very religious about not eating meat and not using plastic straws means you then go off on an eco-holiday, which always seems to involve a long-haul flight. Have you noticed? Okay, so that kind of moral offsetting um, is potentially a serious problem, that we engage in what you might call lots of small symbolic acts, whereas the really big changes don't get made. And I, th I think that's something which we have to be really alert to. In many ways, it might be preferable. I, I'll tell you the final story about this, about doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. I'm in one of the new electric London cabs when I'm not taking Uber Lux, you know, occasionally. And, and anyway, um, one of the things I noticed is I said, it's unbelievably serene and beautifully lovely when it's stationary. Because diesel cabs rattle and make a horrible noise. This thing is very well insulated, and you sit in completely static, serene silence. I said to the driver, this is really lovely, isn't it, when it's stationary? To which he replied, you don't think I bought it to save the fucking earth, did you? <laughs> now, actually, does it matter why he's doing it? I think is the question to ask. What do you think? <laughs> I think we should all ride that cab. <laughs> We've come to the end of our time now, so we're going to take a quick vote on which ideas. So I'll recap the ideas that have been shared, and we'll have a small hand clap or a large hand clap, depending. So remember your number ones, that's, that's kind of I agree, but not fully. And then your, your number threes was the, um, that's my vote for that. So I'll go through all of the four together. Are we all ready? Turning carbon a different colour so we can all see it, and it feels really, really bad. We don't have all the time in the world, we have to go a bit quicker on this one, sadly. Um, Cone, Cone's idea about virtual signalling and making sure that you can feel good about doing the behaviour. Uh, I'm going to throw in Rory's idea about only putting your dishwasher on at night time to make sure it's nuclear powered rather than electric powered. We had Pete's idea in the back about getting rid of Celsius and Fahrenheit and adding in a new measure that really makes, us, makes climate change feel more powerful to us. <laughs> and, um, and finally, we have the idea about getting people to use more plastic straws. Okay, well, with that in mind, um, I think we should say thank you to our panel. Thank you for Pete Frizz and everyone who joined in the big conversation this year. And I'll now hand back over to Sam to close the day. Thank you very much. Thank you.